Chapter One of The Man with the Black Cord. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. Leopold Erlock Disappears. The little hamlet of Inzerdorf near vienna enjoyed the melancholy distinction of being one of the very few spots in the vicinity of the austrian capital which did not lay claim to natural beauty the dusty straggling little village existed mainly for the sake of the great brickworks which were its chief industry there were few people in inzerdorf living there from choice almost everybody had something to do with the brickworks or with the official administration of the village but here and there on the dreary expanse of open fields and moors lay the oasis of a private garden or small park surrounding its dwelling-house and in its turn hidden from the passers-by on the high roads by tall brick walls among these homes of greater ease the Erlock mansion was one of the oldest and best known the house itself imposing in structure in spite of its one and a half stories only in height was of the solid build of a former century and had its every door and window guarded by heavy iron bars the slow growth of many years had enwrapped the severity of its exterior in a mass of rich-toned green half a dozen different clinging plants striving for a place there this rather unusual completeness of nature's encroachment gave the building the popular name of the greenhouse mr leopold erlock the owner of this attractive property was neither popular nor gregarious few visitors passed the heavy gates in the high brick wall that enclosed the pleasant well-kept garden with its wealth of flower-beds under spreading trees on a bright september morning warm even for the season although following a night of storm the greenhouse dozed in its customary quiet the gardener moved silently about the grounds at his task of gathering up the leaves and twigs torn down by the night wind within the kitchen mrs theresa tunner mr erlock's cook and housekeeper stood at the table preparing her master's breakfast tray her movements were slow and heavy and the expression of her worn and haggard face which yet gave evidences of refinement beyond her station was more than usually distraught and uneasy she caught herself two or three times in little forgetfulnesses of the daily routine even in such a simple matter as preparing the breakfast and it took a visible effort for her to pull herself together she was well aware of the fact that any carelessness coming to mr erlock's notice might cost her her place for this elderly bachelor was a very particular and exacting employer and there were many changes in his household force the few people who had occasion to observe it were rather surprised that a woman of so sensitive a nature as mrs tunner could have endured his eccentricities for nearly two years when the tray was finally ready and carried into the dining-room mrs tunner was relieved to find that mr erlock was not already seated there as was his usual custom it gave her time to cast a last glance around and to see whether everything was in order then she returned to her own room which lay between the kitchen and the dining-room and through which she had to pass when going to and fro between these rooms she left the door into the dining-room open that she might hear mr erlock when he came out from his own bedchamber mrs tunner sank down into a chair and her eyes full of dreary despair glanced abstractedly about the neat little apartment suddenly she started a quick flush mounted to her faded cheeks and she sprang from her seat she had caught sight of a bright-colored piece of silk a man's neck muffler which lay thrown over the arm of the sofa 
She snatched it up and threw it into a cupboard drawer, looking about uneasily. Then she relaxed into troubled thought again, until suddenly the realization that Mr. Orlock had not yet entered the dining room penetrated her consciousness. She glanced at the clock and saw that the tray had been standing on the table for fifteen minutes. She rose, took the hot milk and the coffee back to the kitchen and put them on the stove. Then she went to her own room again, but a feeling of growing unease would not let her rest. Such a change in her employer's methodical habits was unprecedented. Mrs. Tunner walked slowly into the dining room and stood there waiting and listening for some noise from her master's apartment. In the utter stillness of the heavy-walled house, her own breath seemed to stop as she stood there with her hands pressed to her heart. Then, as if driven by some impulse she could not understand, the woman moved forward slowly until she found herself in the hall in front of the bedroom door. Here she knelt with her ear to the keyhole and listened again. Not a sound, no moving about, not even a breath, came from within. The kneeling woman rose suddenly to her feet and fell back against the door jamb, her face ghastly pale, her lips parted in a gasping sob. Her heart stood still before the sudden horror that had seized it. She controlled herself with an effort and turned the doorknob resolutely. The door was locked on the inside, another most unusual thing. But in spite of its unusualness, this fact seemed to bring relief to Mrs. Tunner's mind. She moved quickly to the next door down the hall, which led into Mr. Erlock's study. This door also was locked on the inside, and again Mrs. Tunner felt a surge of relief roll over her troubled mind. But it was only momentary. The dread came back again, and she beat at the door, rattling the knob and calling her employer's name loudly. No sound came from within the closed rooms. "'Oh, what is it? What is the matter? What has happened?' exclaimed the woman. She ran to the front door and found it locked as usual. The outer iron gate was also locked, and the keys of both doors were presumably in their usual place on the little table near Mr. Erlock's bed. The now thoroughly frightened woman hurried back to the dining room and threw it and her own room to the kitchen. The straight broad hall that ran the length of the house was divided two-thirds of its length by a cross wall so that it was necessary to go through the dining room to reach the kitchen and the back door. As she passed through her own room and also in the kitchen, Mrs. Tunner cast a glance of anxious scrutiny in every corner. Some hideous unspoken fear lay in her eyes crushed down by a conscious effort of the will. She paused in the kitchen for a moment and then went to the back door of the house and called to the gardener. Andreas Till, bending over a flower bed, looked up with a start as he heard the woman's voice, for in spite of Mrs. Tunner's effort to control herself, the words came in a tone of agony. "'What's the matter?' cried Till, running up to the door. "'Mr. Erlock, he hasn't come out of his room. I don't hear him moving about.' "'Well, what is there to be frightened about in that?' come come to his room did you knock of course well come on let's see what the matter is in spite of his bluster the gardener felt the contagion of mrs tunner's anxiety and he followed her into the house with a grave face they knocked and beat at the doors shook the knobs and called loudly but still there was no sound from within maybe maybe he's gone out murmured mrs tunner between pale lips i've been up since dawn answered till He's not gone out since then. Anyway, I opened the little gate myself an hour ago, and it was bolted then. He couldn't have bolted it behind him. But the great gate? The iron bar was in its place. The bar that locks it from the inside, you know. As the gardener spoke, he bent to look through the keyhole. He saw a pale glimmer of light within the darkened bedroom, 
and the stale odor of heated oil came to his nostrils. The little nightlight by the bedside was still burning. "'The key is inside,' said Till. "'He hasn't left his room.' The two looked at each other with an anxious question in their eyes. "'I'm going to the factory to get a locksmith to open these doors. I'll ask them to telephone for the doctor, too.' With these words the gardener started on a quick pace back into the kitchen. Mrs. Tunner followed, panting. "'You needn't be so frightened,' said Till, when he saw her face in the bright light. "'Old people like that can have a stroke easy, or go off into a fainting fit.' "'Oh, oh, let us pray that it's only a fainting fit,' gasped Mrs. Tunner. The gardener shook his head, surprised at the agony in her voice. "'Why, you're all shook up. You'd better go over to my house, or I'll send my wife here to you.' "'Hello, who's that?' he exclaimed as the bell of the back door jangled over their heads. When the gardener had left the room, Mrs. Tunner sank into a chair, and dropping her arms on the table, she buried her face in them, sobbing convulsively. "'Oh, thank God, thank God!' she gasped between her sobs. "'Both doors are locked from the inside. No one could get into his room. No one. It must be only that he is ill.' When Till and his wife came in a few moments later, they were surprised at this evidence of emotion on the part of the usually silent, reserved woman. "'Don't take on so,' said the gardener. "'We'll have the doctor here soon. Faulkner dropped in to see if there was any work for him after the storm, so I sent him over to the brick factory. He is younger and quicker than I am. He ought to find somebody there by this time, and we'll have those doors open in a jiffy.' Then the three sat down to wait in a silence broken only by Mrs. Tunner's gasping breath and an occasional murmur of sympathy from little Mrs. Till. The brick factory was less than half a mile distant from the Erlock property, and in a short time the assistant gardener, Faulkner, came running up the garden path followed by a locksmith. The group of frightened servants watched the operation of opening the door and then peered anxiously into the dimly lighted room. The shutters were tight closed on both windows, and the light that fell through the half-open door into the study beyond made a twilight in which the dying flame of the little night-lamp flickered pale. The bed was empty. The housekeeper hurried to the windows and threw open the shutters. Then she looked around her. Leopold Erlock was not in his bedroom. Till went through into the sitting-room, and in a moment his voice came to the listeners in a note of surprise and fear. "'He's not here either.' "'Not there either?' repeated Mrs. Tunner, bewildered. The locksmith, a young man with an intelligent face, held back Mrs. Till and Faulkner in the corridor. "'You stay where you are,' he said. "'There's something wrong here, and you'd better keep out of it.' "'It's enough to drive one crazy,' said Till, mopping his brow. Mrs. Tunner stood as if dazed, and the gardener had to fairly push her back into the corridor. "'You go in and look,' he said to the locksmith. "'I can't find him. He is gone.' "'Then I don't see what good my looking can do. I've done all I can.' I'm willing to give my testimony about the doors to the constable when he comes. Oh, yes, we must send for the constable. I don't know what I'm doing. It's all so queer, stammered Till. Faulkner, you run to the police station. I'd better stay here. Mrs. Till went to the door with Faulkner, while Mrs. Tunner, Till, and the locksmith remained in the room. The gardener brought a chair for Mrs. Tunner, who could hardly hold herself upright. Then they waited in silence while the shadow of suspense and fear sank down over the vine-wrapped house. Chief Constable Kern came himself, and heard the story from the three witnesses. Each had only the same simple facts to tell, all doors locked from the inside, iron bars at all the windows, and yet Mr. Erlock missing. "'It's a queer go,' said Kern. "'Some of those bars at the windows must be looser than they look.' 
The constable entered the bedroom, taking the locksmith with him, while the others, at his command, remained in the corridor. The bed had evidently been occupied, but looked as if it had been vacated in haste. This was the only sign of disorder, however, and the two bunches of keys as well as Mr. Erlock's watch lay undisturbed on the little table by the bed. But there were no clothes to be seen anywhere, the suit and the underwear which he had had on the day before, even his shoes and socks, were missing, as well as the nightshirt which was usually laid ready for him on the bed. In the sitting-room everything showed in its usual neatness, for Mr. Erlock was a most orderly old gentleman and exceedingly tidy about all his belongings. One half of one of the high windows stood open, but the iron bars in front of it did not yield even to the pressure of two pairs of strong arms. Nothing larger than a cat could slip between these bars, so closely were they set into the window frames. The two men examined every cupboard, closet, and corner in either room, every place in which a living man or a dead body might be hidden. There were no signs of Leopold Erlock anywhere, nor any clue to the manner in which he might have escaped, or been carried from his room. "'I don't see how it was done,' said Kern. "'He must have gotten out somehow. He wasn't a wizard.' "'What's the matter here?' exclaimed a cheerful voice at the door. "'Oh, doctor,' said the constable, "'we don't know what the matter is, unless it's a miracle that's happened.' "'What did you send for me for, then?' asked Dr. Bergman. "'Is Mr. Erlock ill?' "'No, sir. He's gone. Nobody knows where or how.' Then the constable detailed the case to the physician, his eyes the while following the movements of the locksmith, who was carefully examining the fixtures and bars of all four windows. The room was a corner one and had two windows each on two of its sides. In the other walls, one large door led into the bedroom, while another, a smaller one placed near the corner, opened out into the main corridor. Between this door and the nearest window stood a little table. Something on the table attracted the constable's attention, and he walked over to it, followed by the other two men. On the table stood a candlestick holding a half-burned light, the wick of which was pressed down deep into the wax. Spattered drops of grease lay on the tabletop and on the leaves of an open book beside the candlestick. It was a large, old-fashioned volume, a work of ancient history. It was held open by a letter-weight, and three words on different parts of the page were underscored in ink. They were scattered words, but they formed a complete sentence. The sentence, he, was here. A few hours later, the official police commission from Leasing, the county seat to which Inzersdorf belonged, had taken possession of the Erlock mansion, and was in official charge of the case. Mrs. Tunner and the gardener and his wife were examined again, but could tell nothing more than what they had told to Constable Kern and the physician. Till was the last member of the household force to have seen Mr. Erlock. As he was passing the study window about eight o'clock the evening before, his employer called to him, and they had a short conversation about some work to be undertaken in the garden the following day. Mr. Erlock, Till said, looked extremely well and seemed very contented and happy. Then the gardener and the housekeeper were questioned as to any relatives who should be informed of the occurrence. They both asserted that Mr. Erlock had had few intimate friends and only one relative to their knowledge. This was his nephew, Lieutenant Paul Erlock, who lived in Vienna and occasionally visited his uncle. A telegram was sent to the address given, and about three o'clock that afternoon a good-looking and extremely bewildered young officer arrived in Inzersdorf. As he was the next of kin and only representative of the missing man, the police did not dare to undertake the opening of the safe without his presence. Lieutenant Paul Erlock had nothing to say that could throw any light on the mystery. If there was a secret passageway from the room, 
a passageway which might have been known to the owner of the house or to whoever it was that had carried him off his nephew knew nothing about it he also had very little to say likewise from a lack of knowledge about the missing man's financial standing paul urlock was a frank sincere nature and had little in common with his crabbed and eccentric relative the fact that he was his uncle's sole heir made their association doubly difficult to both the elder man was of a petty and suspicious nature and had his nephew given evidence of any affection or interest leopold urlock would doubtless have thought it an intentional flattery paul felt this and never came to see his uncle unless by special invitation he considered himself as of no more importance than any other passing stranger in the house that would one day be his therefore he was not in a position to give any information as to what might or might not be missing from his uncle's safe the police commissioner opened the heavily barred door and he and lieutenant urlock drew out the various drawers of the safe and examined their contents the key to the safe had been found in its usual place on mr urlock's key ring by his bedside and within the safe there was no sign of disturbance or robbery four or five of its deep drawers were filled to the brim with fresh new gold pieces of high value in another compartment were several leather cases containing old-fashioned but costly jewelry a bitter smile curved the young officer's lips as he saw all this wealth which his uncle had so carefully kept from his knowledge still another compartment of the safe was filled with documents securities bonds and shares and family papers among these last quite at the bottom of the pile was one labeled my will i wonder when we'll be able to open that murmured one of the police officials the money jewelry and documents were placed in a suitcase which was closed and sealed in the presence of the police commissioner and lieutenant urlock then after another thorough examination mr urlock's two rooms were also officially closed mrs tunner informed the police commissioner that she did not care to remain another night in the house with its gruesome mystery the official told her that no objections would be made to her departure but that she must inform him as to her future address he gave a sharp glance into her troubled eyes then as she left the room he motioned to one of his men to follow her he also told till to delay the woman's departure until evening by any means that would not arouse her suspicion the gardener promised this saying he would inform mrs tunner that it was impossible for him to take her trunk to the station until a late afternoon train i wonder why thought the gardener to himself in the two years of their living in the same establishment neither till nor his wife had become really acquainted with mrs tunner the woman's embittered reserve was calculated to arouse suspicion but till was a good soul and did not think it necessary to make any remarks to others about what might interest him when she had packed her trunk mrs tunner went over to the gardener's house to wait until he should be ready to accompany her to the railway station mrs till bustled about hospitably preparing the supper mrs tunner had just drawn up her chair to the table when suddenly her face flushed and she started up taking a step or two in the direction of the door what's the matter have you forgotten anything or is it something you wanted to say to the police mrs tunner shook her head controlled herself and sat down at the table again she tried to eat but it was only by a severe effort that she could force herself to swallow anything i wonder what's the matter with her thought till again she's not the scary kind this thing shouldn't upset her so what makes her so excited but he said nothing to the police for his good heart refused to let him add to the troubles of this woman whose unhappiness and distress were so evident when the time for the evening train approached they walked to the station in silence till pushing the trunk on a wheelbarrow when mrs tunner entered the train 
a man who had been sauntering up and down the platform stepped into the compartment after her. Till recognized him as one of the plainsclothes men who had come that afternoon from the police station, while Mrs. Tunner was in the gardener's house. Mrs. Tunner herself did not notice that she was being followed, so engrossed was she in the gloomy cloud of her own thoughts. End of chapter 1